The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. You ever done something you regret? Me too. Well, I was thinking recently about one of those. And uh, when I graduated from seminary many years ago, we would drive, I would make the drive from Greenville, South Carolina, up to Charlotte. And it was a 100-mile drive. And we had to make the drive with Kim's family, who I didn't know very well at the time. I had not been married very long. And I was thinking like a young and dumb 25-year-old, 26-year-old, as to we were kind of in a little bit of a hurry. So I drove very aggressively all the way to Charlotte with Kim's mother and grandmother and a convoy of vehicles behind me. And my, you know, my other side of the family, my mother-in-law, would used to bring it up over the years that it really scared her. And I've thought about it since then that any normal person knows that when you drive with a group, it's a totally different way of driving than when you're by yourself. You look at lights differently. You're anticipating differently. You go ahead and break if you see there might be the potential of a yellow light, knowing there's no way they're going to get through it. Well, I wasn't doing any of that. I was thinking about my freedoms and get there. And I think that's kind of what Paul is getting at in this chapter in Romans 14, is that we're in this together. And though you may have the freedom to drive, act differently if you're by yourself, but because we're doing this together, we have to work together. In, the, in World War II, I don't know tons about World War II that I should, but I know that the U-boats of Germany were a big problem, and they were sinking a lot of American ships. And so as we began to fight against them, and we would set up convoys to travel across the Atlantic, well, in order to fight back, our subs and all of our warships, they'd have to convoy together. But the only way to do that was you would have to stay together for your protection, and you would have to proceed at the speed of the slowest ships so that none were destroyed. I think that's what Paul is getting at here in Romans 14, is that some are weak in faith, and they're maybe younger in their faith, or they're not strong in knowing the, the freedom that Christ has given them, and they're still wrestling with issues of conscience, and we'll get into that. And others are strong and saying, let's go, we've got freedom, let's, let's march forward. And what Paul is saying is, we're in this to, together. And so the first half of Romans 14, which we looked at last year, is dealing with the Christian liberty itself. How we are to treat each other in the midst of that. We have certain liberties about days and food and drink. And he, and he deals with it negatively and positively. The strong and, and the weak are both given a negative command. The strong are told, don't despise, don't look down on, don't con show contempt for those who may not agree with your position of liberty on a certain issue. And the weak brother is not to pass judgment on the strong brother. But then the positive is for both. The positive command is each are to receive each other and to welcome each other. And why? Because 
God has welcomed him. And why has God welcomed him? Because last week we talked about the book of Romans is all about one word. It's about righteousness. And the righteousness has been imputed to us by the life and death of Jesus Christ. And so the ground for fellowship is a working out of justification by faith. And if we really get that, then it has horizontal implications that our ground for fellowship and communion is not whether you agree with me on my particular positions that are non-gospel related or non-kingdom related. The reason that I accept you is because of Jesus alone, his life and his death. So the second chapter is then, okay, if that's true then, but then how are we to exercise these liberties that we have in Christ? What does walking in love look like? And what would not be walking in love? Well, let's take a look at the text and, take a, and see for ourselves. Romans 14, beginning at verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is, un, is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be taken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let's pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let me pray again. Father, these are, this is a difficult passage. Difficult in its uh, implication. Difficult to understand even. And how to apply it. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would lead us and speak through this very word. That we would know how to apply this in our own lives. Pray that our love would grow and that our hearts would be wide open. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think it's helpful to go back and consider the context. You know, context is really important because I think it's easy to, to read Romans 14 and you just jump from eating meat, drinking wine, and say to yourself, well, if someone's offended by my eating meat or drinking wine, then I will not eat or drink, and that would cause someone to stumble. And that is a fairly legitimate application, but I think um, it's, that's an apples-to-orange application rather than a simple apples-to-apples, one-to-one correlation. If this was a one-to-one correlation, then the reading audience and the hearing audience whom Paul is addressing would have a problem with meat because they think that a vegan diet is better and that something is wrong with meat in and of itself. That's what and that drinking an alcoholic beverage of wine would be considered wrong or a violation of conscience to some, and therefore we shouldn't drink. But both of those starting propositions would be wrong 
because you're reading American context and American eyes and reading into a text, and that would be a classic, what we would call eisegesis fallacy of reading into the text instead of reading out of the text, of not really properly understanding the context. So what is the context? Well, Paul is writing, and I'm just going to ask you to, to stick with me a bit this morning because we are kind of have to get into the weeds so that we can understand this. And there's some technical stuff that we're going to have to work through. But Paul is writing to the church in Rome. And the church in Rome is made up of Jews and it's made up of Gentiles. Their backgrounds couldn't be more diverse. The Jewish converts, we talked about this a little bit last week, to Christianity, they were steeped in Old Testament ceremonial laws in the Pentateuch. And those laws were very strict about what was clean and what was unclean. And a lot of the things that we love today, that we eat, such as a lot of the seafood and certainly the pork, was unclean according to the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And so the purpose behind those Old Testament ceremonial laws was to help Israel remain distinct and holy and not to be overrun by dominant pagan societies all around them. That would have been one of the reasons. But the other reason was kind of a deeper principle that God would have them be clean So as a reminder with these foods that one, for one to come into the presence of God there has to be a cleansing that takes place before one can come into his presence. Well, now that Christ has come, and we see from the fuller picture of the New Testament, particularly the book of Hebrews and Jesus' own words in Mark 7, that the ceremonial laws were a shadow and a type. And now that Christ has come, all foods are now clean, and we can freely partake because our purity and our cleanness doesn't come through our diet, it comes through the death of Jesus Christ, our Lord, for our sins. So that's one side of the coin, is that these weaker Jewish Christians in their faith, though they knew this gospel to be true, they still had a hard time if they were looking at at barbecue or if they were looking at some good seafood, they would still struggle with their consciences. Is this really okay or not? To give you an example, let's just take Peter in Acts chapter 10. Peter's hungry, he wanted something to eat. This is a big chapter in the Bible, and while they were preparing lunch, he falls into a trance. He has a vision, and the heavens opened, and something like a sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air, and there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I've never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Now when Peter went on down for lunch, if they were serving barbecue for lunch, do you think he just would have freely partaken? He was still wrestling deeply because he's still weak in his faith at that point. That is this really clean? Is this really the implications of the gospel? Is that really true? I can eat barbecue? His faith was still uh, being weak as the implications of the gospel were still being digested and its precious nutrients hadn't gone yet out to all the cells and fabrics of life that need the gospel to free them from cultural captivity, just as you and I do. Well, that's one half of one side of the church. 
So the one half of one side is strong Jew, Jews in conscience and weak Jews in conscience. So that's one half of one side, but we've got another half and two sides over here. And that would be, the other half would be the Gentiles had issues with meat too. But their issue with meat also involved wine. Here's why. The Gentiles were coming out of a pagan culture. The pagan culture was ripe with idolatry. And here's what the idolatry looked like. The meat that was eaten in the large cities like Corinth and Rome was first purchased at a market. Okay? The meat that came to the market was first slaughtered at a pagan temple. The priest kept parts of the meat and the rest of it was used for a private feast or sold to the market at a cheaper price. Well, much of what, uh, much or who knows how much of the meat that, that now you're seeing at the market had first been prayed over by a pagan priest, offered to an idol, and wine was poured on it as well as an oblation, and the meat would be offered in the morning to Apollo or Athena, a pagan gods, and then offered to you at lunchtime. Well, the Gentile converts to Christianity... The, the, these younger ones in their faith, they, they knew what kind of stuff was going on at that temple. Sexual immorality, demonic activity, drunkenness, and they wanted nothing to do with that. And therefore, we don't eat, eat meat or drink wine because that is what we've been saved from. So the weaker Gentiles were refraining, but the strong Christian Gentiles knew the truth in these matters, the truth of the gospel. For them, the penny had dropped. And the freedom of the gospel had worked its way down to them to be able to eat meat and drink wine to the glory of God. Doug Moo, who's probably one of the most thorough commentaries, it's a thick commentary, um, he says it's important to note that the weak would not have abstained, not because they were afraid of the intoxicating or enslaving potential of alcohol, but because they were afraid that the wine had been contaminated by association with pagan religious practices. Same with the meat as well. They were not convinced of a vegan diet and that meat was bad. They were convinced that the meat was contaminated by an idol, and that's why they weren't eating the meat or drinking the wine. You see, so that's why I'm saying it's an apples to oranges rather than just a simple one-to-one correlation. For the strong Christians, they would recalling now that the bigger context of Scripture were in 1 Corinthians were quoted, the same issue in 1 Corinthians 8, and the, and the passage that is quoted is the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, Psalm 24.1. And 1 Timothy 4.4 4 tells us that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. If wine was in and of itself unclean, then how could Jesus have made something evil? In Mark chapter 7, Jesus is accused of defiling himself. And he says there's nothing outside, of, and they're upset because he didn't wash his hands properly, which will probably have a lot of that kind of stuff when the church reopens or regathers, you know. But, and Jesus says there's nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he entered the house and left his house, the disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, 
then you also are without understanding. Do you not see? Whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean. That's interesting. That's Peter, most people think that Peter was dictating this to John Mark. So, and it's only in this gospel that we're given this specific parentheses that all foods declared clean. And then he says, whatever, but what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart of man, comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. And so if you look closely at Paul's words in this chapter, we see that Paul understands that the stronger brother is actually correct in his understanding and knowledge of truth. It's in their application of truth that he has a problem with. So it, look carefully. Paul writes in 14.14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. That is the objective truth and couldn't be put more clearly and persuasively to us. And then you look in the middle of verse 20 of the same chapter and Paul again says, Everything is indeed clean. So eating meat is good and clean and pure, and drinking wine is good and clean and pure. So we can just move on, right? Hmm. What's the problem? The problem is not everyone is there yet in this right walking of the gospel. And, and for the strong, you have to bear with and be patient and not put a stumbling block or anything that would tear down your brother or sister's faith. This is where, where Paul says, we've got this quote that people use all the time, you know, knowledge puffeth up, but love builds up. The actual context of knowledge puffs up, but love builds up is in this very context, and in 1 Corinthians 8. It's in the issue of the strong brothers using their freedoms because they have the knowledge that it's clean and good, and so they use it arrogantly and brazenly and puffily, puffily, so that the, instead of building up the church, they're actually tearing down the church, and they're destroying brothers and sisters. Knowledge puffs up. Love builds up is what Paul comes back and says to that. So be careful with your freedoms. So we cannot use the knowledge of the truth to be a parading jerk or brazenly arrogant in front of others. Can you see that that doesn't help the church? When I was, again, back in Greenville, I had an intern who worked with me, and he was a young seminary guy, and he'd come up from Atlanta. He was a young Furman graduate, and he was about 23, 24 years old. He full of truth, and uh, all of his freedoms. He loved to parade them. And we had this, um, and Greenville's pretty pretty wound up city. Um, Bob Jones University is there and there's just some, a lot of taboos and drinking was certainly one of them. And we had a, anyway, we had a staff building event. So it's a church staff event, lots of staff members, and we're all going to play nine holes of golf at a par three course, dividing up into teams. But my young intern seminary friend wanted all the pastors to see his freedoms and so midday, 
he buys a, a can of Budweiser and he proceeded to drink it around the golf course so, the, so that the staff could see what his freedom in Christ was all about. And I saw him not too long ago. And he just shook his head. And he said, I was such a, a butt. He used a different word, but you, you get it. I mean, he realized what a fool I was back then to be parading my liberties like that. And besides... Budweiser from a can. Anyway, so let's walk through this text. So verse 13 is a double command. So there's two commands here in verse 13, and, and the one is, well, technically in Greek, it's a hortatory subjunctive, which means it has the force of an imperative, but the second one is an imperative and has even more weight. So it's a double command. So here they are. It's the same word, krino, which means not to pass judgment. So the first one is don't pass judgment on one another. And if you recall last week, that was the weak brother's problem in verse 3 and verse 10, is that the weaker brother is looking at the stronger brother and judging them, okay? Now, the reason why that's a problem is Paul never addresses the stronger brother and says the problem with the stronger brother is that you're harming yourself with your, with your view. He never says that. Your view is, your, your understanding is these things are good and clean, but you're hurting others. But the weaker brother looks at them and says you're destroying yourself and you're hurting me often. Okay, so the idea is you're not to pass judgment, but the second is an imperative with, e- with even more weight, and it's this, is that the, uh, where the second idea is you're, not to, you're to judge this all the more. You're to consider this, weigh this, make this verdict, make a decision. And the decision that you make is I will never put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. So how might we be doing that? That's kind of where it gets tougher in the application. Well, specifically, in direct fellowship with a brother or sister, and you're out together at a restaurant or your house, and interestingly, in this context, it most likely was at a love feast that these very problems were happening, the fellowship lunch after church. And your brother or sister is either a vegetarian or a teetotaler, and yet you offer meat as the main course, and you insist that they try it, and you begin to work them, and they don't drink alcohol, yet you serve them an alcoholic beverage with the meal, and really out of love, you should, if you're not sure, you should say, would you be offended? Are you okay with this? And if they're not, then love them and honor them. Now, I don't think this means that we should all become teetotalers or vegetarians, because somebody will find out that you know, if Pastor Bale eats, eats meat and drinks wine like the apostles and Jesus did, Paul's not saying don't ever partake. What he's warning against is flaunting those liberties before the week, but even worse, causing them to stumble by convincing them to go against their conscience and partake with you. So that's why verse 14 is a two-part argument. Verse 14 has an objective argument and then a subjective argument. The objective argument is that nothing is unclean. And I've already quoted you the verses to defend that from Psalm 24 and 1 Timothy 4.4 4 and Acts 10, John 2, Mark 7. If Paul is persuaded 
this way, isn't that just the end of the argument? It's either wrong or right, it's black, it's black or white. Paul doesn't nuance like that, and neither should we. The Christian is free, subject to none. But that's only one side of the tightrope. The other side of the tightrope is that the Christian is a servant of all and subject to all. That was Martin Luther's great axiom, right? It's a tightrope. You walk on, you got to walk the tightrope of both sides. So the weak brother needs to love the freedoms of their brothers and sisters in Christ and respect them. And the strong brother needs to love the weak brothers and respect them and their opinions and on their views to honor their consciences. Because the second point is a subjective argument. He's saying, although it's a clean objectively and before God, some brothers and sisters are not there yet in their faith, and to them it is sin. And if they think it is sin, and therefore go against their consciences, whatever is not of faith would be sin. And therefore you would be causing them to sin. And if you're causing them to sin, Jesus says it's better to put a millstone around your neck. So Jesus, or Paul is saying here, you remember, let each be convinced in his own mind, verse 5b. That's important. The text does not say, let each convince another mind. That's how we tend to read that. (laughs) At least I do. I want everybody to be convinced of my opinion. Don't try to convince everybody of your mind. And then in verse 22, he says, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. So on non-gospel issues... Beware, weak brother and sister, of making universal laws that rule now over another strong brother's freedoms. Keep your faith between yourself and God. R.C. Sproul speaks about being, you know, wanting to be on this Christian board, but to be a member of the Christian board, you had to be a teetotaler. And Sproul said, you realize that Jesus and the apostles couldn't be on your board. Your position is one of weakness. The churches have to be careful of this. The church I was at before in Greenville, the pastor wanted the elders and the deacons to be teetotalers, and he wanted us all to tithe 12%. And the elders didn't pass either measure because they both were going beyond Scripture and members' individuals' freedoms. Let each be convinced in his own mind, Romans 5, 14.5b. And so on the other hand, strong brother, your freedoms, though, are to build up the church. Let everything we do make for peace and the mutual upbuilding. So use your freedoms to build up the church, not tear it down by grieving your weaker brother to cause them to violate their own conscience. Now, you may think, well, how could somebody be weak on these issues? And I always thought, well, I'm, I'm a strong brother. And I remember when I was, I've shared this before, one time I was in London on a short-term mission trip. And we, on this trip, we visited a few pagan temples. We walked through and we were observing so we would know how to better pray for the people that we were ministering to. And I think it was a Sikh temple that we were in. And we saw the very idols in these temples and there would be plates of food offered to these idols. And it was like, wow, that's exactly what Paul was talking about. There it is, right in front of me. And so when we came out of the temple, there was some people out front, and they had a plate of food, and they're offering it to us as we came out of the temple. And and I'm thinking to myself, that looks a lot like the plate that was in there, and I think this plate 
of food has been offered to a demon, and I have to make a decision right now, am I a weak brother or am I a strong brother? And i got to tell you, I was a weak brother. I thought, well, the idol is nothing, but Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that there's demons attached to that, and you're dining with demons when you're in the pagan temple and eating their food with them. And now here I am out of the temple, and there's no sacrifice being made, but I had to wrestle with conscience, and I said, ah, no thanks, I'll pass. But some other people partook. Now, we didn't judge one another. They didn't despise me for not eating, and I didn't judge them for eating. We just loved each other, and we recognized we had different views of our conscience. Isn't that what the body is supposed to be about? But if your brother was grieved by what you eat, he says you're no longer walking in love. And if I had told the brothers, there's no way in the world that you guys can partake of that, and I'd be grieved terribly if you do that, then should my strong brothers partake anyway and say, oh, Charlie, you're such weak faith. Why don't you go on back to the nursery? Mind your own business. Is that what Paul says? He says, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. When Paul brings in Christ's death, you got to think that through. Is he saying that Christ died for him to make him holy? So how can you go against the work of Christ who cleansed him and purified him? Or is Paul saying that Jesus in his death laid aside all his freedoms, all his glory, and endured a cross for you? And if Jesus loved his neighbors and loved us like that, how can we not as a follower of Christ deny a little bit of our freedom so that we can follow the example of Christ? Is he appointing to his accomplished work or the example of his work? Which is he referring to? And I think either one are compelling. Um, I think they're both true, but I'm not sure which Paul is arguing, but I think it's more the latter, that he's saying the example of Christ, that he laid aside everything, lost all of his freedoms and was tied to a tree or nailed to a tree. Can't you forego some of your freedoms out of love for your brothers and sisters? John Piper put it like this in one of his sermons. He said, Christ gave up his life to save your brother. Can you not give up a little freedom to eat meat, to join Christ in saving him instead of destroying him? Christ sacrificed his blood to bring him to God. Will you not sacrifice a little food to join Christ in bringing him to God? Christ surrendered infinite freedoms and infinite rights to die for your brother. And will you not surrender your little freedom with food and your little right with drink in order to join Christ in bringing your brother to God? You see, in verse 16, he's saying, don't let what you think of as good, um, what you regard as good, be spoken of as evil. And the idea here is this food, this meat, this meat and drink is good and regarded as good by you and your freedoms, but don't use those freedoms now in such a way that now people will look at you and speak of it as evil because they're being wrecked by what you're doing. Let me try to illustrate this for you. Recall hearing a story of a lady that had, she bought a really nice Martin guitar. You guys will like this story. She bought her Martin guitar, and she brought it to church one Sunday, but she was running late, very late. And it was terribly cold outside. You'll like this story, too. And so she brought the Martin in from the cold, and she just opened up the case and sat the thing on the stage. And as the church was beginning... And, and as that guitar started to warm up and this guitar made of precious woods and these nicer guitars, laminate woods do much better with the 
temperature changes because they're built cheaply, but whole grain guitars, they don't respond well to big temperature change. And she just pulled that thing right out of the case. And right there in the middle of the service, the guitar cracked. And everybody could visibly see a gap now in this guitar. Her beautiful guitar was destroyed. Well, think about this in the strong and weak brother arguments. The strong brother is saying, the guitar needs to be played. And I can play it whenever I want or wherever I want. And the weak brother is saying, are you crazy? You, you can destroy that guitar. You should just leave it in the case. Well, the Martin guitar is good and should be played as all things are clean and pure, but take care as to the environment in which you choose to open the case and play that guitar so it doesn't destroy somebody or doesn't destroy you, the guitar. If someone's faith is being destroyed by your faith, best to put your liberty back into the case. You see, what Paul is getting at in verse 17 about what's really important is I think the people were saying it's my rights. I have my rights to eat and drink. This is what Christ died to give me. And Paul is saying what Christ really died to give you is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The kingdom is those things, but when questions of food and drink become our chief concern, then it's apparent how far we are removed from the interests of God's kingdom and how much we have strayed. You see, we're to seek first the kingdom, not seek first eating and drinking. Mu, once again, this, his wonderful commentary, Doug Mu on Romans, he says the Pharisees were all into the rituals. You remember that Jesus railed on. In Matthew 23, Jesus called out the Pharisees because they were so into the strict adherence to the law that they neglected the weightier, weightier, weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. And what Moose says is the Strong Brothers doing the same thing here. He's so set on his freedom and privileges and indulgences that he tramples over the weak's conscience because he isn't concerned about the weightier matters of the kingdom, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. He's more concerned about food and drink, which are trivial in comparison. Well, back in 150 years ago in London, there were two big mega churches, two big mega pastors, Charles Spurgeon and Joseph Parker. Well, Spurgeon got upset at Parker because Parker went to the theater, and Spurgeon condemned that. And Parker shot back that Spurgeon smoked cigars. And Spurgeon said he'd stop smoking cigars if it ever became a problem. And when asked what, what that problem might look like, he said, well, if I start smoking two at a time. And another time, D.L. Moody railed on Spurgeon after a sermon for smoking cigars. And Spurgeon got up and told Moody that he was overweight. And that God gave us Ten Commandments and no more, and I'll go home tonight and smoke a cigar to the glory of God. Well, Spurgeon did stop smoking cigars. You know why? He came across a sign in front of the local cigar shop, and the sign said, We sell the cigar that Spurgeon smokes. And Spurgeon realized that he wanted to be known for his love for Christ, not his love for cigars. And so he gladly gave up the cigar so that the name of Christ could go forward. He realized Romans 14, 17. You see, verse 18 is this idea then, is as we love the body, he says, whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. I think what he's getting at here is, look, 
If we're not serving ourselves, but we're serving the Lord, weaker brothers, stronger brothers and sisters, we're to serve Christ. And as we serve Christ, not ourselves, not despising uh, somebody or passing judgment or not causing one to stumble, when we do that, we are, God is, we are accepted by God, and the body of Christ will see that you're serving Christ and not yourself, and they too will approve. And so verse 19 is, let us live in light of that, pursue peace and the mutual building up of one another, but we'll build up my brothers and sisters, and, and then we'll have to be on guard against anything that would cause them to stumble. Both weak and the strong can tear down. The weak can tear down by judging. The strong can tear down by despising. And even worse, by causing one to sin against their conscience. So, in conclusion, Paul argues in verse 20, do not then for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Here we have this imperative that everything is made clean or pure, but it's wrong, okay, if for anyone who makes another stumble by what he eats. So if you're trying to be, uh, use coercion, you're trying to manipulate force, use peer pressure, any type of tactics to get a brother or sister to go against their conscience, whatever is not a faith, is sin. And so if you're trying to press somebody, oh, come on, it's no big deal. Why are you such a wimp in this? What's your problem? And in doing that kind of thing, the strong brother persuading the weaker brother to go against their conscience would be a terrible sin. Now, Paul knows that when you, this idea of destroying, he knows that ultimately you can't lose your salvation. So he doesn't just give them all, don't worry about it, strong brothers. They can't lose their salvation. Just, just work on them. Is that how Paul argues? You know, kind of like the old thing as a kid was weebles wobble but they don't fall down you know say, ah, weebles wobble but they don't fall down christians can wobble but don't worry they can't fall down they can't lose their salvation is that what paul says he gives a strong warning that he's saying do this and take this seriously because if you're pointing people towards sin that will destroy them and so paul isn't saying surrender your view either to the weak or to the strong but he's saying, don't brandish your view to hurt the weak or bring destruction. Don't parade your view. Don't endlessly post yourself, drinking it up on Facebook and Instagram, enjoying your freedoms. Here I am. Aren't I special? The weak, as the weak in faith mature and their consciences are more and more enlightened by the truth of what is good, many will come back on some of these issues that prior to caused them to stumble. But the strong, too, have to grow up. And what they know to be true in theology, now they've got to live it out in practice. And they can't go roaring past these lights when it's going to turn red for the cars behind you. You have to be mindful that we're all working in this together. And so walking in love is not destroying and leaving anybody behind. And so it's being subject to all because we love all. May the Lord give application to each of us in these matters. Let's pray. Father, forgive us where we have sinned, where we have looked down on others, where we've passed judgment, where we've tried to tell people it's no big deal.
or think little of these things. Lord, these are big, big deal. Even though they're not gospel issues, they can hurt others' consciences, cause them to sin. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give wisdom to each of us, that we would um, humbly hold our views, that we would not parade our liberties. Pray that your church will grow in love and all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.